everybody. We are back. Welcome to season three, episode one of More Than a Title. I'm your host, as usual, Jared Thomas. Sorry for my voice, guys. You can tell I'm excited. I've been celebrating. I've been looking forward to this moment. So uh, before we begin, I just want to say thank you to all the supporters. Uh, we've been growing still. Thank you for all the comments, the likes, uh, the reshares, everything. It, it means a ton to us. And we have a really exciting lineup for you guys today. I mean, this week uh, for, the, for this episode of season and I've got my brother on right here. So I got a, this is a very special episode for me where I'm going to tell you why in a second, but let me introduce this gentleman. He's an entrepreneur, an advisor, investor with a background in hospitality, restaurants, branding, franchising, CPG, and restaurant technology. In 2008, he founded 16 Handles in New York City, which was his first self, self-serve self frozen yoga shop. This restaurant concept would become the segment leader in NYC and grow to over 40 locations internationally. He later sold that company to consistently produce eight figures and system-wide revenue in 2002. He also co-founded Greeno Products and successfully exited that business earlier this year. And he's currently the founder of Java Brands, which was created to invest and advise brands that improve the way we eat, drink, and live. So I want to introduce you guys to my brother, my mentor, Solomon Choi, man. How are you, brother? Good, Jared. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for having me. And again, I feel like this is like our, our monthly uh, check-ins. It's just that we're recording it now and sharing it with the world. That, that's it, man. And, and I think that's a great place to start because I, I want to tell everybody that's listening, everybody's been a fan of more than a title. When I first started podcasting, it was a podcast called Rankable. And we started this as a way to, we were in the middle of the pandemic and I wanted a way to drive sales and have cool people on and potentially drive business because my entire pipeline disintegrated with the, pipe, with the, with the pandemic. And Solomon was the first CEO that I interviewed. And after hearing your story, man, that first time, I remember just like, why the hell am I talking about SEO and not, even, not talking about this? I'm like, SEO is not sexy, like, like growing a business or growing your brand and everything you took us through. And I don't even want to get into that because I think you did it so beautifully. So if anybody wants to listen to it, it's on Rankable. But I'm curious because you're a big influence in my career and my life, brother. Who was that person for you, especially when you started the business? Who was the, the one person that you could rely on that always gave you that sauce or always give you that inspiration? Yeah, you know, Jared, I think uh, when I moved to New York in 2008, so this wasn't my 16 Handles wasn't my first business or, or the yeah. first restaurant for that matter that I had opened. Um, it was my first one where I owned it, but I had opened them before growing up in, in Southern California and um, I had experience there. But I'll, I'll tell you this. I think that's really my biggest regret, actually, and probably something that I can really? share. I'm embarrassed about it now. And it's probably why I over index and wanting to help and share that knowledge is because it truly does take a village to, to grow uh, you know, the restaurant ecosystem. Uh, but when I moved to New York in 08, I had no connections. And so I think that was, you know, I felt like a, I felt like a lonely, uh, you know, a, a adopted child by the city of New York City. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it was lonely, man. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I would say more so than any single individual being kind of that mentor. I sought counsel just through people who had been doing it, who had done it before me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just recently came back from a, a restaurant and um, franchise innovation summit in, in Florida the other day. But it was that, you know, what I did was I went out and I found the leaders in the space as well as just colleagues. And to me, it wasn't even about, well, how many units do you have and how many franchises do you have? I feel like, you know, some of those things are self shills. And, and look, unless you're the founder, like I can go get a job with the 20,000 unit franchise. It doesn't mean that I did anything right to deserve it other than the title. Right. And yeah. so, I mean, more than a title, how apropos. Yeah. It was really about for me, like building the business and building the brand from ground up and just leaning on anybody that would kind of, you know, listen to me, give me the time of day, share their secret sauce. Uh, but, you know, there were there were a lot. There are a lot of people on the way um, that I, you know, continued to network with. And now are my colleagues and friends, like, you know, 15 years later, you know, down this journey. But for me, it's been a great way for me to also like meet up and coming. Yeah. Right. And, and, and upstarts and new entrepreneurs in the space, because. I see it. And so for me, like when I see that hunger and I see like a reflection of a version of myself or, or that same desire, that excites me because I know exactly yeah. what that's like. And part of it is like, I just, I wanted to avoid a lot of the mistakes that I made, a lot of the painstaking, you know, lonely, costly errors that I made. And also just lean into some of the tools that are available today that weren't when I started. And so, yeah, yeah we can go back as to, you know, 2008 when I started it, I didn't know social media. I didn't even know what it was really, right? And so yeah. I'm kind of that weird Gen X in going into, you know, millennial, you know, 1980 baby where, you know, it, it just wasn't, it was foreign to me. It wasn't native to me. Yeah. But in seeing my customers, especially with that first location in East Village, I had that NYU consumer base. 
and really that young millennial consumer base that was my consumer that was my those are my customers those are my employees and so i really like listened and leaned into what are they doing right because what they're doing i'm only like a half generation removed i'm like five years removed from getting it but i realized that i'm like but if i don't understand it and learn it and adopt it then to me how am i supposed to build this brand that's supposed to cater to my my consumer base right that millennial yeah. base so I did. And I swallowed my pride. I'm like, look, I don't know how to use this stuff. I didn't have it in college like you guys did. So teach me. What am I supposed to do? And I think even just having that type of attitude of, you know what, like, just teach me, you know, and, and be humble. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I believe in having a lot of confidence and I'm a very confident person. But also, like, if I don't know, I don't want to be the guy sitting in the room or running a business for that matter and pretending yeah. I do and then, you know, getting caught when I actually don't. You know, to me, it's like, hey, put that aside and and just try to learn. And that's why I love the in-person conferences, to be honest, um, yeah. Summit, because to me, you just can't get that at scale, no matter, you know, how many Zoom meetings you're on. It's, you know, <laughs> so you're true. Not kind of, uh, you know, interaction. And and so I would, I would you know, highly recommend that as well as I, I believe, look, technology has unlocked this. That's how we met. We've also met yeah. in person many times, right? And I feel like that's why we have a real relationship. We have, we have, we truly have an omni-channel relationship, right? You and me, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we online sessions monthly, but then we'll also, you know, have, you know, dinners and drinks and, and be able to celebrate life together, like in those momentous moments, which we have one coming up because I know you just yeah. have some news as well. Absolutely. Um, but, 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 but it's really that. And so, you know, rather than having like one mentor per se, um, it was, I just adopted, just like, you know, I adopted a lot of different mentors, you know, throughout various stages and, and across different verticals. And that's why I think even when you read me my intro, as I was listening to it, I'm like, man, that's a lot. CPG, restaurant, franchising, restaurant tech. Like, those yeah. are a lot of different verticals. I mean, you could argue that some of it is tangential, but yeah. to me, it was that. It was just the fascination of staying committed to being a consumer of the consumer game. You know, and I think that's, that's the one thing that unifies even the two of us, right? Like, yeah, yeah you were slanging like SEO tools, this and that, and you're a master on social media and, and understanding that and creating playbooks for, for others. But, you know, to me, it was this idea that, hey, more than what we think we know, the consumer is going to tell us what he or she wants. And if we can lean into that and lean into those channels, create the products, create the services, create the restaurants, what he or she wants to eat and drink, then we'll always be in there. There'll always be something for us to be connected to, right? From a revenue standpoint and, and even just a relevance standpoint. And so yeah, I think uh, that's something that I know you and I both share and we talk about monthly. Yeah, that, that that's that's great advice. Uh, and I would give anybody that's listening to, so to give somebody context, like after our first talk, I would give anybody, especially young professionals, just ask, ask for the help and also be a student of the game. Like Saul saying, you know, like even being a mentor, there's people that I look at on LinkedIn as other business leaders. I look at what they're doing and then I extract the lesson from it. So just, you know, look at what other people are doing in the space that are really well. And then if you guys want mentors, like I asked Solomon, I asked. And, and, and this is what the relationship was. And I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know what a mentorship like. I remember that first conversation. So I was like, man, I don't. What does a mentorship look like, man? I just want to, I want to be friends, man. I want to, I want to barbecue five years from now when I can't chill. Like, that's what I see. And, and to see what is, what has transpired from that, man. So if anybody listening, um, you know, having Saul in my life and, you know, learning from him, it's changed the way I do business. It's changed the way I do life. It's a lot. It was a big influence for me. So if that, you want that to happen, you got to ask the people, be around people who are successful, who have that energy that will pour that energy into you. So I'm grateful for that, brother. And you also mentioned the uh, costly mistakes with the business. I asked Stephanie Stuckey this last season. I got, and I've got to share. I've got to ask you the same question. What was that costly mistake? One that you would want to share with the public. So what is one mistake that you remember? You was like, oh man, I would never go through that door again. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, there, I mean, I could, I could name so many just within 16 handles. Again, it was a lot yeah. of like trial by, trial by error. Um, but I'll say this, like, I think this is very appropriate, you know, for, for, for anybody. In terms of having a signed agreement that really details out the terms, right? And you could think, oh, well, yeah, I mean, that's pretty obvious. That's why you have agreements. Well, those agreements don't extend just to, you know, between person to person. But even um, I'll, I'll give an example. So on the advisory side, I've hmm. now advised or am advising two different companies um, where they didn't, they, didn't, uh, they didn't have their product registered and trademarked. Right. Wow. And so, again, to me, it, it's that's that's just the one on one. It's a rookie error. And I get it because in the beginning, you're just thinking like, hey, came up with this cool name. I don't really have traction yet. You can start getting traction. Busy. You know, once you start getting into weeds of building a business, you forget. And what I would say is costly is making sure that those, you know, eyes are dotted and T's are crossed uh, for one of so my true. portfolio companies early on. 
it ended up being really expensive because it's a CPG brand and they had already gone through production on packaging, right? And oh. then to get this cease and desist letter and to fight that off with attorney's fees is enough. And look, I have a lot of friends who are attorneys. Shout out to attorneys. We need them. <laughs> but again, it stinks when you're a startup and, and you're paying fees to, 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 do, to do stuff that if you had just you know, set it up the right way, you wouldn't need to. And so um, that's, mm. that's, that's one. Um, I, I would also say that even for, for me, something that was costly, even, and, and I'll point the finger to myself, even within an agreement, right? Because just because you mm. have that doesn't mean that you're completely protected. Um, I had an instance with one of my franchisees within, you know, within 16 Handles where I had to go through the process of putting them into default. And mm. long story short, the TLDR is to put someone into default means you gave them chances to correct the issue and they don't. And so now you kind of kick them out of the franchise. It's like getting evicted. Yeah. If you don't pay your first month's rent, you don't get evicted the next day or even 30 days later. There's a process. And so that's probably the closest analogy. Yeah. Um, it kind of evicting someone from your franchise. Now, wow. that's also difficult to do because it's a store that um, my name's not on the lease. It's the franchisee's name on yeah. the lease, right? Wow. You're selling a product. And quite frankly, the, the customer doesn't know who the store is owned by. They don't know if I own it or someone yeah. else. Owned. They just know, look, it's a brand that they like. And because of the actions of an individual, we had to, again, go through the process of debranding it, cutting off supply chain, right? They weren't right. able to buy the product. So that ended up being very costly just because um, even though I, I went through the motions of enforcing the, you know, enforcing the agreement. So it wasn't so much from a dollar's perspective because that's the beauty of a franchise agreement is, you know, those things are all spelled out. But it was costly in terms of what that did in terms of taking the eye off the prize of working on the brand and putting yeah. the stress, not only myself, but my family, you know, the people at the support center that were working with me, the yeah. other franchisees and the customers that were complaining, they're like, what's going on? How come my app's not working at the store? So things of that nature, yeah. there's a trick effect to something that probably could have been nipped in the butt much earlier if I had, and, and my mistake in all that was this, it's not that I, I didn't, I messed up on the agreement. It was, I allowed things to slide. I was just kind of like, ah, well, you know, let's give them an exception and do that. And so to me, mm. like those exceptions will start catching up. And though they may seem small and, and, and meaningless or frivolous in the beginning, once, you know, once you start scaling those, those errors, those small things become big things. And yeah. to try to correct it later on when it gets too late or out of control is going to cut and you're going to pay in spades. Cause at that point, now that small thing that back then, if you would have just, again, it would have yeah. been a, a couple difficult conversations and that would have been it by letting it slide, sweeping it under the rug ended up becoming this massive thing where I'll tell you just to, just wow. the just the lawyers made seven figures on that, you know. So that's wow. like, you know, I, I take that back. Six figures, not seven figures. But I, was, six I, was figures. Like, I was like seven. Wow, damn. <laughs> you know, this, was, this wasn't a murder case. This wasn't a murder case. <laughs> but but still, if you think about it, how yeah. could those funds have been reallocated towards growing something as opposed exactly. to fighting and, and defending? You know, and to me, that's where that was, that was a big uh, that was a big learning experience. I'll share one more actually, mm -hmm. as I'm saying this. So the other thing was. And again, uh, take what you want from this. But for me, being in the franchise industry, I had landed a really large um, international deal with the group out in the Middle East. And so mm -hmm. it was a big, uh, you know, it was a big, I'll, I'll tell you, it was, it was 750K upfront for the franchise rights for the Gulf Coast countries of the Middle East. That wow. was a huge deal. You know, somebody who bootstrapped my business with $600,000 and never took on outside capital, that was more than the capital that it took to start the brand, right? Wow, yeah. And with that, you know, I thought like I'd never done international and, you know, now like the stakes are really high. I need to start. I need to go out there and bring somebody on who has you know a ton of experience, who has worked with, again, these multinational companies. And the mistake was not necessarily hiring someone who had more experience. Right. I, I think that's always a, probably a good idea. But the, in the way that I, I did it, I let go of everything from culture to my processes to just thinking like, well, I'm not sure, like I don't know how to do this. And then looking back, I should have stepped, I should have still stayed in the driver's seat and looked at it more as advisory and say, hey, here's what I want to do. Kind of what are the pitfalls, but not just like kind of let go. Right. And think like, well, I have someone on the team now who, you know, I, I just assumed knew that everything would be would you know, would know a lot more than I do. And not, not to say that he didn't. Yeah. But again, I think that the stage that we were in, I over indexed in thinking, oh, um, and I gave way too much credit in the previous brands that this individual worked at. But again, to me, the founder and somebody and a founder who's in an emerging concept, you, you deserve a lot more credit than you think. And even if you wake up, you're like, I don't know, I've never done this before. You got it that far for a reason. Right. And no one's yeah. going to care more than you do. And to even think that someone will care as much. 
I think that's a fallacy. You don't yeah. hire people that you think people who are just as committed to this company as I am. Well, unless they're co-founders and equal owners, I think you know to assume and expect that I think is is uh, is unrealistic and, and foolish. Totally. But at the same time, I think staying committed to the goal um, and making sure you hold everyone accountable, regardless of their title, I think is something that you know as a founder CEO that uh, that that's on you, right? So to me, yeah. I take a hundred percent of that blame that I I kind of let it go. It, it it went a different direction. The team got you know the team that was hired after that you know. I had to fix it. And ultimately, I'll tell you what happened. I, I did a control out delete and I got I asked the individual to to leave and I, you know, and people, you know, followed. So to me, it was like and, and again, I even thought at that point, I was like, you know, maybe in three to six months, I'll be able to fix this. And looking back, that probably, again, took me back two years to get to a point where, again, I had another well run organization in terms of internal um, human capital. Right. And so yeah. you have to, you know, the infrastructure there that got you know, kind of like derailed because we were already a small team to begin with. Yeah. I underestimated what that would do. And so to me, like those are the two biggest kind of financial and time, uh, you know, uh, you know, learnings or, and losses, you know, that I, that I can think of. And so, yeah, just wanted, want to put that out there. And again, like it, it regardless of whether you're franchise or not, I think that there's some truth to that can be taken out there is one, like never underestimate yourself if you're in that seat. Um, mm. And then, because no one's again, no one's going to care about it more than you do, right? Absolutely. So, if anything, surround yourself with advisors. That's what I should have done, right? Mm. Rather than bring in the highest paid individual just because they have more experience on paper, what I should have done, right? And looking, and this is probably why I do this for other startups is bring on advisors who have done it, right? And bring yeah. on advisors who actually have done exactly what it is that you want for the next step, not the final result. Because that's another thing that I've learned is so true. Bringing somebody on, it's like, oh, I went in when it was, you know, store 500 and now it's like 2000. It's like, that's great. But when you went in when it was store 500, it was already a well-oiled machine, you know? Exactly. And, yeah. And point, getting from 500 and not to take anything away. But my point is, you didn't build it. You know, to that's me, it. I, I want to know who took it from zero to 50 because that's the hardest. You know, that's the hardest. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say bring in a sprinkle of both, you know, depending on what stage you're in. But to me, don't get too caught up as a, as a startup founder and think, well, I need to bring in, you know, the CEO or the whatever of this. If they didn't build it, then it's a different set of skill sets that they have and that they're going to bring. And if you're not already close to that level or that level is the next level, then a lot of it is going to be, I think, lost in translation, to be honest. And I've seen it happen. Yeah. And I'm also on advisory boards where, again, they'll tell me um, and probably why I stick with more of the early stage stuff to me, like I built it from zero. Right. So yeah. I know everything that comes along with that because I've done it. Um, not that I know everything that comes along with it. I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, that's too sweeping. But I've gone through my own experience. So exactly. I've experienced all of my own experiences. So I've seen it at least once, you know, and I've seen exactly. it. You mentioned even with Greeno and, you know, I've built multiple, you know, companies now. And and now I'm on the side where, um, you know, I'm helping others, you know, build build their companies. And, it, and it's great. And to me, the greatest thing about being an advisor and or an early stage investor is that. And that's why I like the advisory yeah. role. Um, and we can kind of transition into that is I got into that because as I was running my business, you know, I saw and would talk to a lot of people that were like, hey, can I pick your brain? And, you know, I'm trying to do yeah. this and be like, hey, like, you know, don't don't do that. You know, you're about to walk into something. <laughs> Door number two again. You know, and so that naturally and organically turned into more opportunities where, you know, obviously, like if I wasn't giving good sound advice, then I don't think others would come to me. But word of mouth is still a great way to to get your brand out there. And yeah. Um, and to me, you know, I, I always say this is I, I don't want to work in people's businesses. Right. Because then um, then I, I don't think that I can scale even even myself. But to be able to work on people's businesses, that to me is like an amazing puzzle to like be a, you know, a part of the, the, the solving crew of. And again, like it's, it's one where I, I still know, like I still have the battle wounds and the scars to remember. Like I know what, I still know what that feels like. You know, it wasn't like it was yeah. 50 years ago. Um, and so it's still fresh enough where. We can we can be dangerous together, so to speak, and I think you know that, that's the fun part, man. I, I love it and I love seeing it. Absolutely, man. And I want to I want to bring you back because actually you made me think of something. I saw an article today. I don't know if you saw it, where Starbucks CEO is now going to be a barista every single month in every in, in one location a month to understand. I didn't what read that. Experience. I didn't read that, but hey, man, I respect that. I respect that. Um, look, I could see some haters being like, "Oh, it's just a publicity stunt." No, it's not. No, I'll tell you at that point, that CEO who's been the CEO for a very, very long time and is probably doing this because, you know, he's been so far removed from day to day operations. Um, I can respect that. I, to me, without even understanding why, and I'm not in that boardroom, 
I think that there's a, a lot of value. And if anything, rather than criticize why he's doing it, I'd applaud that because Absolutely. even for me, like I, I would be critical of myself. Like I definitely lost touch once I was removed from the store, right? Like when I first built the company right. in that first year, I was in the store almost every day. Right? Exactly. So I, yeah. so I knew exactly what was going on. And to have that pulse, look, when you're growing and then you have to start working on building a franchise organization, you can't be in the store. That's why I chose to kind of move into that new role, right? Yeah. But with that, to get feedback from layers, you know, the telephone game that we used to play, it's yeah. that, that's exactly what it is. And regardless of how great your manager is and your district manager and your, and your VP and then your CEO, you're going to get a filtered down version of what's actually happening. Um, and I, I was just in a, uh, I was just um, at, at City Field yesterday with one of my, with, with my, with my client and we were doing a media day, right? Cause uh, they're launching, they're launching their spring season. And the manager of, I guess, like City Field Food made an announcement and to, to all the vendors that were there. And literally between three of us, we heard and interpreted that differently. Right. And wow. so, and it was instructions on what you need to do with like your main product. And then, you know, what we were giving to like media and influencers that were there. And so there was already like, you know, a mismatch of, hey, it's this. And then there was kind of internal strife. And I was like, hey, guys, what did, and so I just stopped and said, like, hey, guys, what did you hear? Right. Like, mm -hmm. and then one person said this. The other person said, yeah, I heard that. But then it was this. And I said, well, can I, can I let you know what I heard? Cause I actually didn't hear what you heard, but I could see why you heard it that way. And it wasn't about who's right, but it's like, we're, we have three differing opinions. Um, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So we should probably just go and ask again, like what it is. Um, and I actually ended up being right on that, but that's, that's <laughs> a, but, but again, I could, but I could understand how it could get lost in translation. And we were all there. Yeah. This is live. Like we're talking about minutes after the person said it. So now imagine if you're a C-suite level or whatnot, or even a VP in your office or at home office, whatever it is, and you're getting information that's being brought to you that could be days or weeks or even a month old, right? You're doing recaps and postmortem. And you're going to make a boardroom decision. This is why they say like some of the, you know, that's a great idea that lives and dies at the boardroom. I could understand yeah. that sentiment because it's like being close to the employees and the, uh, you know, and the, and the customers, that's where the real answers are. And that's where the transactions that's happen, that's right? It. That's and, it. And, and I think that's, that's so important. So I totally commend that. Um, I just came back, like I said, from this franchise, restaurant franchise innovation summit. And a big part of that, more so than any other types of shows I've been to, was talking about, hey, if 80% of the revenue is driven by your frontline workers, you know, typically within quick service restaurants and fast casual restaurants, you know, and yet only 10 to 20% of expenses from technology solutions and whatnot are, are, are diverted into, into that 80%, then there's a mismatch, right? And so when you think yeah. about onboarding, retention, and, and, and engagement, like, I think restaurants had to over-index on that and over-invest real quickly during the pandemic because, you know, myself included, being a Northeast yeah. brand, like our stores were physically closed to the public yeah. and then they weren't even allowed to come in for, for a while, right? And so in looking at that type of scenario, fortunately for us, like we had already invested into a mobile app and online ordering yeah. and, and that, but again, a lot of restaurants didn't, they never had to, right? Especially exactly. what if you had takeout or delivery, all of a sudden that's the only business you can do. You had to figure out packaging solutions. You had to figure out everything really quick. Yeah. And so I think for the last two and a half years, there's been, like I said, this knee-jerk reaction, rightfully so, but a knee-jerk reaction to overly investing into consumer and guest engagement and you know packaging solutions and, and that whole thing because of what the pandemic did. But then again, if you think about it, the, the biggest and greatest investment that we actually needed during that time was, was the labor. Right. And there were exactly. over 100,000 restaurants that were lost during the pandemic that will never come back. Like, that's a huge number. Wow. And, you know, there were, I think, like a million you know, service employees, like hospitality, restaurant hospitality employees that had left and they haven't all come back. And some of them have gone on to do other, you know, other professions. Yeah. But when I look at that, I think part of the problem is because the industry kind of overlooked them, to be honest, and, and didn't invest accordingly. And so that's why it makes sense to me now in this new season, because some of that's returned now is, hey, so where do we reallocate or at least, you know, or start investing into if we haven't is really that is if we don't have employees, right? If we don't have frontline yeah. workers, we don't have a business, you know, restaurants, you can argue and, I'll, and, I'll, and I leaned into that early on, but yes, we're omni-channel. We, we, you now need to, you need to. You have to be. But I'll tell you like, you know, the in-store dining is, is coming back and it has been coming back very, very strong.
And I think people are also, you know, they had a pent up demand of wanting to engage with people in real life. Like even when you and I meet, it's like, yo, let's yeah. meet in the city. Like, let's let's break bread. You know, let's share a drink. Like, yeah. I think that is going to, you know, that activity and those those things are luxuries that we look at them as luxuries now because we, you know, we've been muted on that for so long. And so now that it's returned, what are we doing, though, for the people that are servicing now, when I'm putting on my guest hand, we're walking into a restaurant. Like, what do, what are the business owners and what are the brands doing to make sure that hey, there's also a new workforce and the new Gen Z workforce that has never worked in the food and beverage um, industry, which you and I both have, you know, in yeah. our earlier years, they're not coming with those skills, but their expectations from everything from the onboarding experience to training and retention and and flexibility is very different than when you and I first worked in restaurants, man. And yeah. to if you think that you're a restaurant owner, you're going to apply those same rules. You're, you're, you're not going to get a, you're not going to get quality uh, weight staff or, you know, working uh, um, individuals. And B again, if you plan on hiring the younger generation, which at some point you're going to need to, there's just going to be too much of a disconnect. And they're very much looking at the companies as, Hey, you're lucky to have me. And cause I can go do a million other things, right? I can yeah. be a part of the gig economy and, uh, and, and and work multiple jobs. But if I'm going to be dedicating these shifts and working with our customers, right, and servicing them, then uh, then then you need to make sure that I'm taking care of. And they're really demanding that now. And so to you me, to. You see a lot of these tools now that are available, I think this is what I foresee as like the next moment for these next few years that the best in class and the leaders in the space, not just in food and beverage, but specifically because I can speak to that, and having come from a conference just a few days ago, I've seen it. There's going to be a lot of investment and in, and 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 programming in that space, and I think that's yeah. exciting for for everybody. And to me, it's a long-winded way of saying I, I'm pretty sure that again, you look at Starbucks is really led with omni-channel and digital, right? I mean, they're from a first loyalty team, programs, all that. I mean, yeah, they're pioneers in that. Um, but again, if 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 the leadership is too far removed, it's new. It's it's a new, you know, it's a new day and age. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. it's very different than even from you know January of 2020, and so yeah, I respect I mean, I think it, man. And I commend I, that. I really, I, do. I, I thought it was when I saw it, I thought it was brilliant, and, it, and what it did was remind me of my days of barista. And for anybody listening who is in the hospitality industry, like I thought the same thing, right? People don't realize how important those frontline staff workers are. It's kind of like the nurses. Like we we started to shine a light once the pandemic and all of that stuff happened. Like for me, when I was working in Dallas BBQs, it taught me everything I needed to know about sales. It was customer experience how are you and then i just simplified it how would i want to be served if i was coming to this restaurant it's kept it simple right do i want my water do i want to make sure I, if i'm getting a big texas sized drink uh, is it good did it come on time you know what i mean am i not thinking too much i just tried to do the best and i would have a line outside the door you know what i mean but if you weren't the ceo how would you know that that's even occurring you know what I mean? And like you said, it's that disconnect. So I applaud the CEO of Starbucks. I hope more people do it. Um, and it also brought me to something. I actually thought of another cool thing, right? Because one of my favorite shows for anybody listening, I love Shark Tank. I'm one of those dudes. I, I watch it every Friday and I love The Prophet. And you were on The Prophet, brother. So are you reminded me well, it was a couple of months ago. I remember you sent me the clip. I was like, yeah, how did I not remember that you was on this thing? And it was crazy. But I'm curious if you could share with us, what was that process like? So this, um, they hit you up, the show hit you up. What was the things that happened behind the scene? What was the interaction like with, with Marcus? Um, you know, being that you did a deal, do you maybe have a, a favor in the back pocket? Like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, that was an amazing moment. Um, there were two things that happened. So the first thing that happened, which is probably the layup that led to being called on by Marcus, um, you know, at the profit to, you know, kind of be an expert for one of the brands that he, would, you know, made an investment into. And I'll mm -hmm. go into that. Yeah. Was... I was doing a lot of uh, a lot of stuff for Chase Small Business, and so mm. they had you know kind of been highlighting me and Chase, you know, JP Morgan Chase, obviously being based in New York City. Their media team, someone must have liked Sixteen Handles because they started hooking me up with online commercials and then an actual TV commercial. And so there was wow. a series of kind of small business oriented commercials for the Chase Inc. card, the Chase Inc. Uh, like business cash card. And so uh, and I, and I was and I, and I got to pair up with Marcus Limonis from the profit to, to do one of these vignette commercials. And wow. dude, it was awesome. When I got to be paid as an actor, that was a first. So I got to check that off. The list. <laughs> Never, that was going to happen. Um, but I think it was that. And so that's what a started a relationship. You know, I mean, when you're shooting a commercial, I didn't know. I mean, it was an all day affair for a 30 second commercial. So, I mean, also wow. props to actors. Jeez. Like I, I, I couldn't do that full time. Um, 
But I guess with that, then Marcus had reached out to me uh, when they were doing, um, he had invested into and took a, a pretty big stake in Mr. Green Tea Ice Cream. So it was the family um, out of New Jersey and they were looking to now scale and start doing more wholesale outside of just selling to restaurants, right? They wanted to get into CPG. They wanted to get into, you know, different types of, of food service. And so, you know, typically the, the profit show is, you know, once they start getting their act together and he puts, you know, injects his, you know, people process and people Pro process, process product. product. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the yeah right. Piece, right? <laughs> um, then it, then typically what they'll do is, you know, they'll allow the fourth piece, then pitch it to somebody in his network. Right. That's able to then kind of unlock some doors. And so that's what it was. I mean, and for those who want to know, because I had friends ask me, it was completely real. It's not staged. At least my wow. experience. I really speak to my experience. And I remember Marcus even having a one on one with me before. And he's like, hey, Solomon, I know that, you know, this is TV and all that. But literally no pressure. If you say no, because they don't do a good job pitching or you don't like it, then you need to do that. And so I was like, wow, I respect that. You know, I respect because that. And so, yeah, I mean, my my decision to move forward and we actually did launch one of their products in our store and that was like a cool collaboration was purely based on, you know, it, it was based on really the team there. Right. I mean, sure. Marcus had an influence. Right. But it was really the team and, and what I saw the vision of, of what they were trying to do. And I think in looking back, that was also at a time when I started doing a lot of these collaborations with 16 Handles. So to me, it was in line with what I wanted to do. And um yeah so that was great but yeah it was an amazing experience and again all day of filming at at, at our office um it was a yeah. lot of fun but um yeah but it was it was real man that thing's not it wasn't staged and and also i'll i'll, I'll say this i'll credit marcus who you see is who you get if anything like i feel like he's maybe even more in some instances a little more aggressive in person and his tv <laughs> persona is not like he's just like you know He's got a ton of energy. He's very passionate and he's a, he's a very authentic person from my experiences I've had with him. And so um, just wanted to also, you know, give a shout out to Marcus. Um, Definitely. For literally get, help, you know, doing, doing the, the commercial and then also inviting me to be on his show. So I, I had the pleasure of doing that. that. That's such a cool story, man. I, I know that feeling had to be like, oh man, I'm with Marcus. I'm on the show, the publicity. And you were early on. And, and I'm curious too, like you don't have to go into specifics, but how did that campaign perform? I'm curious. The green tea was it was this very successful yeah. campaign so you know the campaign overall so overall i'll say no it wasn't um oh that's I real think, i appreciate yeah, that so, oh, damn. no i mean look that's i, I think when we launched it there was a lot of there was a lot of hype around it and, and marcus and obviously the show is a big pr vehicle and so when it first launched and, and when, we, when he came and did an in-person launch thing i mean our store was packed like lands out the wow. door but i knew that most of it was because of marcus and the profit um, but the reason for that, I would say, was I think that at, at the time when we had launched this, um, it was at a time where still the popularity of Froyo and the types of flavor profiles that lined up with that were, were really what people were leaning into. And yeah. granted, even the products we launched were a frozen yogurt, but we were using a different base, right? We were using a different manufacturer and, and even the flavors at the time. Again, I think we were just a little too early because the flavors that we had launched had we like launched them like in the last couple of years, I think again, the Gen Z would be all over that, you know, but they, 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 they were a bit, you know, they were a bit uh, adventurous, I think for, for that moment. And, and, and timing is everything. You know, timing, timing is, is everything. everything. So yeah. I wouldn't say because it was a bad product. I just think that in terms of the market fit with our demographic, especially because you have to imagine most of our stores are outside of New York city. Right. And so even in terms of like what the consumer is willing to try, you know, when you're putting in a new flavor, you're taking away somebody's favorite flavor. And so when yeah. you're putting in something that may be a bit adventurous, um, you know, it just, it just didn't hit. And, and that's it. That's all it was. Um, and if it did, we you know, probably would have continued doing it. But but that's OK. And they're doing fine as, as no. a company. But it's testing. And, and that's a great lesson. Right. Like it, it, even that, that whole story was a lesson, like you said, for the campaign. And I appreciate you being so real about it. like, no, why? Why didn't it? And why? Like for anybody listening with Saul is saying especially in his vertical, he was doing with fro frozen yogurt, consumer education was everything, right? The product, you know, it was the New York's first. So you're, you're introducing a new product to a whole new market, to a whole new segment of people. And then, you know, like you said, you got to test and try it. You got to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. Unfortunately, that one didn't stick, but it was the whole process. And just to have that relationship, to be on TV, the branding, it won even if it didn't win. 100%. 100%. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that I'm very proud of that we did as a brand and, you know, hopefully we'll continue um, even with new ownership is 
like never stop trying be be a be a leader i think when i say be a leader i don't what what i mean by that is just being at the forefront of innovation and trying you know that's one thing that we never and i never got scared i was never like oh well yeah we tried that it didn't work you know whenever i would hear that from anyone whether it was internally on the team or or even a, a customer like that would if anything fuel me to be like hey it just means that it didn't match right the timing yeah. and the thing that i was trying to deliver on didn't match hey but guess what you as the consumer you're right I'm building this for you because I'm not building it for myself, Tina. I'm building it for you to want to buy, right? And so you're giving me the insights of what I need to then go back to my uh, purveyors, my my manufacturers, and we need to get it right. And sometimes it's going to hit and sometimes it's not. But even when it doesn't, what I would say is like, don't write that off as, oh, well, we already tried that five years ago. It doesn't work. No, it didn't work five years ago. And why didn't it work? And to me, the postmortems are super important. And some of the startups that I've that I work with, they fail to do that. And so that's what I try to bring back is, hey, it doesn't matter that we got it right or we mm -hmm. didn't get it right. Anyone can get lucky once. Luck as a strategy, okay, repeat that. Now repeat that for the next 10 years. How do you repeat luck for 10 years? You can't, right? So to me, it's yeah. like, okay, if we've got something wrong, like what could we have done better? And why did, first of all, why? Why why, why did not meet our KPIs, right? I wouldn't say wrong, but why didn't it meet our KPIs? And that's could it. we have done something different? Was it the process? Was it timing? Um, whatever that is, Okay, and guess what? Maybe timing isn't we try again right now, but let's shelve that and remember that we have this in our back pocket because gotcha. then when the timing is right, we've already gone through this before. So we already have a go-to-market play, right? Yeah. Um, and so like it's things like that. Or if it did work, hey, that's great. High fives, awesome. Yes, celebrate it. But what, why did it work? Why did it work? And if, we can't and if you can't really define that, then I think that's very dangerous because the next yeah. time around when it doesn't and you can't go back and be like, well, it worked this time and be like, okay, so why? I don't know. It just did. Like, again, that's not a strategy and you can't repeat that. And to me, so with franchising, so by true. definition, it's a repeatable process. It's SOPs that work, right? That's fueled with marketing, branding, and product innovation, right? So first of all, if you want to be in food franchising, you got to get the, the marketing, the product innovation down. But then the SOPs, the system, that's, a, that's just a machine that can repeat anywhere, right? So that's yeah. the piece where that thing has to work. But if, that, if those inputs of innovation aren't there, then again, like I would challenge, and for anyone who looks at that, I just had my 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 uh, my sales agent who sold me my house ask, like, "Hey, did you do you, do you know of any good franchises that I can invest in?" And mm -hmm. to me, you know, I have a I have a mental model for that. Actually, let me share it. Let me share it in case anyone else uh, cares. But to me, the model that I use, nobody taught this to me. It's just one I use, so it's mm -hmm. not right, wrong, or indifferent. It's it's my it's how I look at it. Is if if the um, if the upfront cost versus the annual revenue is a one to two plus ratio, one to two X plus ratio. So meaning mm. if it's um, $250,000 to invest, then to me, it better do at least 500,000 in annual revenue. And I'm, sp I'm speaking specifically for food mm. franchises, right? Um, that's when I think like, hey, that's, that's a good model. That's a strong ROI. And, Makes sense. and yeah, so to me, it's like, if it's a two Xer, good, right? If it's a three or four Xer, dude, those are like the unicorns, I get that. To, look, to put into perspective, like a um, a, uh, a Chick-fil-A, which is like the biggest, uh, you know, highest grossing, you know, QSR franchise, you know, that's like a that's like a six Xer. Right. So that's unicorn yeah. status. Right. That's where, you know, a million dollar location, uh, you know, to build can do eight million in revenue. Right. And so, yeah. um, you know, but those are the unicorns. But to me, again, just a general rule of thumb for anybody who wants to know, because I would I wish somebody told me something like that. Right. Then. Yeah. So um, true. And, and then, about even 16 handles growth years, I'm like, that's because I was the 2X pluser, you know? So I didn't do franchise shows. I didn't do advertising. Once people got a hold, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this, this thing makes money. That's when they got in. Um, but yeah, that's just a, something that I learned over the years um, that when I evaluate Love franchise, that. somebody asked me, hey, Solomon, I'm, I'm thinking of this franchise. Like, what do you think? That'd be the first thing I look at before I say, let me try the product is, is this a sound investment? So love that man <clears throat> and i'm curious too brother because i have this feeling when i pass 16 handles like any location it don't matter i could be an american dream i could be somewhere but i see i could be in the palisades or somewhere and i see the 16 handles and i get the warm and fight like man this is my brother's store and i gotta go and i gotta get something with family like how does it feel when you go back or do you are you a customer or do you go in with your kids and your family like what does that moment feel like for you yeah you know so it's two things for one um depending on like, you know, my, my kids love it. You know, my daughter, especially she grew up, you know, yep. knowing that her dad was the the founder of 16 handles and, you know, that's so cool. Lo loves it till to this day. Um, for me, it's two things for one, I think maybe because I am like, I, I literally created it. 
I'm also very critical, you know, when I walk into the store because mm. yeah, to me, it's an extension of something that I created, right? So my first lens is not like, oh, I'm so proud of this. Um, that's the second lens, right? It's, it's <laughs> oh man, like, what could we be doing better? Like, oh man, why is this store dirty? Or oh, how come like, you know, this employee's not wearing their uniform? So to me, like, that operator's hat, like, you know, it's just natural for that to happen. But yeah, I would say then like later it, it is like, oh man, like, you know, this is kind of cool. Um, but I don't know. That may also just be a cultural thing for me. It's like I, I'm just more self-critical of like myself <laughs> anything yeah. that I've done. Um, but but certainly, certainly proud and, and proud of, you know, the the team members that that work there, the the franchisees that a took a, a bet on, on 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 something that I started, um, yeah. the support center staff that helped build it. I mean, look, it takes a village. You know, I didn't do this myself. I may have had an idea and sure, I may have been the first one to execute it, but it wouldn't have gotten to this point unless there's all these other stakeholders involved. Right. And, and also the, you know, the customers. I mean, I, I was always sensitive to the customers. And I think that's something that just in general, like whether you're in food service or not, you know, even if you're in e-commerce D2C business, I mean, the customer. Right. Like that's 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 ultimately who's yeah. going to dictate and determine. Do you have a, a good, strong financial company or not? I mean, yeah, so true, man. And, and, and I could imagine there were pressures. I, I know because me and you talk about this, but for anybody listening, we started our own business outside the box digital. So we're in the early growing and we're, we're rapidly growing right now. It's such an exciting period, but it's a lot of stress and it's a lot of pressure, right? So I'm curious, man, in the early days or even now, how do you deal with the work-life balance? Like, what do you do to relieve some of that stress or some pressures that you may be dealing with? Yeah. So something just real practical that I started um, in 2020 during the pandemic, I started running. Yeah. Yeah, um, I just actually last Sunday, I just ran the New York City half marathon. Um, mm, like my congrats. But to me, it, it's that is um, I, I like signing up for races and I like running regularly. Um, it just allows me to reset myself physically and even mentally, I feel like. So just having a health, good, healthy habit that can be a part of your routine um, is something that I, I would certainly suggest. Um, I mean, cause even from, from family and being, you know, a dad, like, like, you know, we're both dads. It's like, sometimes you just need to also get away from that. Right. It's not just, yeah. how do I have more time with family? It's also, Hey, how do I have time away from family just for myself? Yeah. And so I think it's important to be selfish about that for yourself. Cause the best way to show up and be the best version of, you know, being, you know, dad, husband, brother, whatever it is, is, is making sure that you're good to yourself. And I think if anything that I learned, there's pandemic is, is that like, be good to myself first and then others. Um, and that may come across selfish and some people may not agree, but that's worked for me. Um, the other thing is like, if I get involved with something again, it's, I'm also now a lot more, um, selfish with, again, the hours and the parameters that go along with that. Mm -hmm. So to me, if we're going to have a monthly check-in then one, I expect, you know, I expect you to show up, but it's also, um, you know, like it, it can't go on like indefinitely, you know, like meaning like if we're, if we're blocked off for an hour or 30 minutes, then like, you know, we, we, we got to try to like stay stay within that time yeah. period yeah. it's also something where um to me like in an advisory role like i can allocate maybe start by allocating time right but if but if you don't reach out to me i'm not here to run your company right yeah. i'm here to be an advisor and therefore i would say utilize that and maximize that as much as much as possible and i'm sure all, all my you know other advisor uh you know colleagues will say the same is there's a lot of times where you're kind of put on the advisory board and, and the pitch deck to show like, Hey, look, these are the people in my corners, like to, to try to raise capital. And I'm not digging that. Like, yeah, sure. That's important, but why not then and, and actually like, you know, use, use those resources that you have access to. I, mean. um, I think that that's not done enough. And, and I feel bad. I actually feel bad to the companies because I feel like when I see some of the decisions or the aftermath that happens, it's like, you have so-and-so on your advisory board. Like they could have told you like not to do that, or they could have totally opened up that door for you. Like, I know that for a fact. And it's because they don't ask. And so to me, first of all, ask, just like Jared said, and, yeah. and it's not even about just being advisor or mentor or like you and I are friends now we're brothers. That's right? it. That's and that's how we talk to each other. And so it's not even about like where you are, like, sure. It may have started that way, but you know, when you show the authentic version of yourself and that other person reciprocates, then it forms something that's way more beautiful and, and bigger Absolutely. and better than mentor, mentee, advisor, you know, and, and, and company. And I would strive for that. And so to me, I say this, yeah, but I take a dose of my own medicine. Like I didn't do that enough when I started. And, and, and that's why I would want to tell that to myself too. Like I need to hear this, right. And be like, so Solomon, mm -hmm. so who are you reaching out to, right. To do that. And look, yeah. I go to the conference and I do that, but to me, and now I have homework, Jared, it's, Hey, aren't there a couple of people that you met that you need to follow up with? Get that yeah. on the calendar, start that relationship. 
build that yeah. build that friendship right not just hey let's how, how can how can they make me money tomorrow right it's mm-hmm. how do i build a relationship with them because chances are i'm a going to see them at another conference but even if i don't it's you know th- this it, again i keep going back to this it takes a village man it, it really does sure. For sure, man. And I can tell anybody listening how relationships can change the course of your career, can change your life. Like you said, how you approach it. I think for a lot of salespeople, especially in the ones that in my in my industry, we think of things that are so transactional and you have to reprogram your mind out of that. Right. Like like say somebody that connect with you saw and then they'll say, how do you but then, you know, a pitch is coming. Right. Like with you and I, there was never a pitch, man. It was just like, yo, I heard your story. And I was so damn inspired. I'm like, holy shit, you did it with 100K. You did what? You went to this store and you said what? And then you launched it. And a year later, I was just inspired. Man, I was on cloud nine after that first pod. And I'm just literally thinking to myself, like, what do I ask you, man? And I'm like, let me just ask. Let me just but ask. You know what? I, I want to I also give you a lot of credit, Jared, because, you know, over the, over the, over the course of those few years, man, it's already been, you know. Right? You're, it's crazy. You're, you're, you're now on this end. You're now the entrepreneur. And we would talk about this, remember? Because you were first call. It was about like, hey, like you know, going into a next role, and and I remember telling you, I was like, you know, you're gonna you're gonna know when you're ready to do it. Because you remember, you'd ask me like, how do I know when I'm ready? It's because it's gonna be when you do it. When you do it, <laughs> that's when you look back and be like, oh, I was ready. <laughs> and it's not that you couldn't have been successful then, but that click and that unlock only that entrepreneur knows when that happens, and it's it's when it does, right? And yeah. and now to be able to see a lot of our conversations manifesting and you're doing it man like i'm so proud of you like to see this and you, and bro. i'll also say this out there like had you not reached out and and by the way i actually want to rewind because i get it all the time too but i would say there's nothing wrong with look if you're in sales that is a transactional role but i think what jerry's trying to say is don't just make it only about that exactly right? to me it's not an if or an or it's an and right to me you yeah. can have transaction and relation and when you have both then you'll have long-term sales because you have long-term relationship i do do think that it goes hand in hand i have yet to see someone who has a bad transaction with someone and has a long-term good relationship with them right like that <laughs> ends so or it keeps going so i would say like focus on the end part you know in your case again you could have easily led to like hey like let me evaluate your your SC, but you didn't and instead look at us now we have a friendship right and that's now right. i get to also cheerlead for you on the sidelines as you're growing your thing and so to me like that's what it is that's really what it's really about and that wouldn't have come if you just pitched me and i said like hey i don't need it or no thanks and then it would have been, okay, let me move on to the next one. Um, I mean, because that is going to be a part of someone's job in sales. So that part, there's nothing wrong with that. But don't leave it at that because you never know, right, what what that encounter could lead to. And so if you do feel kind of this tugging that, hey, there's so much more that I could probably get from this individual, not just this deal, not just to hit my sales quota, then, then take it beyond that and be like, cool, like whether you do the deal or not. My point is maybe the deal is known that, like, hey, man, I don't need that product. Cool. You know what? Like, hey, would you be cool if I, you know, could get 15 minutes of your time, you know, at any point in the next like one to two months? Because I would just love to understand kind of like more about you. Look, people are going to, I think, be more open and willing to share their journey if you're coming at them with authenticity like that. Right. And it doesn't. And that's what I'm saying is and that's what you're saying is don't try to put the bow of the sale around fake interest. If you truly do feel that there could be something that's long term and value, then first invest. Right. Put out that. Put out that olive branch and just be like, hey, look, that aside, I want to get to know you. That's right? it. And people, when people you know, feel that there's a genuine interest in them, you know, they're going to respond to that. You know, generally speaking, they will. That's it. And I know for me personally, man, I, I know. I, so for to give anybody context, right? So I was in sales for 11 years. I was in a, I was in a place where display advertising. So early in the, the days of 16 Handles, right when it, the, the brand was booming, right when it became a staple in NYC. I had you on a list, on a cold call list. And I remember hitting you up one day. And I remember you being the coolest dude ever. Like, I'm just telling you, not even because you're here, bro. Like, I remember you sitting me down. I'm like, hey, man, I'm doing this. I hit you my sales pitch. He was like, that's cool, man. Um, I don't know if I really need that right now. <laughs> but look, <laughs> how about you approach it this way? And then we end up having like a five, 10 minute conversation about that. And I'll never forget. I never forgot that shit. I remember we connected on LinkedIn, I think a little bit long, little time after that. But, you know, I would keep tabs, man. Just, hey, what's up, man? How you doing, man? Or whatever. And I never tried to pitch you. But I'll never forget that being a young, hungry sales dude and speaking to the CEO of 16 Handles on a cold call. People in my call center are like, huh? How the hell did you get that? <laughs> did you get a yes? No. <laughs> but I got him. <laughs> so I will always, man, I will always appreciate you, brother. 
I already appreciate everything you've done for my life, my career, man. I'm so glad that we are, man. You, you are family to me, brother. I'm so glad that an honor for you to be the first guest on season three. Because everything we've discussed, man, has come true. We discussed about entrepreneurship. You've seen me at good times. You've seen me on down times. And just to have somebody like you in my in my corner, man, people like you and Ken, like I love you guys, man. And I appreciate you. I'm glad to have you guys in my corner. And it makes me feel like I can I can do anything, man. So I love you, brother. And anybody listening that wants to, you know, connect with Saul, connect with him, man. This is who he is. He's a gentle, he's a, a genuine brother. And he's willing to help people. And he's just I get a Harvard business class every single time we talk and look what it's done. Like, that's just real. Like, that's how I feel because he, I, you've done it. You've done it. And we have intimate conversations like that, brother. So like it, I use and apply a lot of that to my business. And now we're growing and becoming successful, man. Now I could give something to my kids. So I appreciate you, my brother. And anybody listening, there's a lot of gems in there. We're going to clip this up. This was a great conversation. We've got a crazy lineup for you guys this year. Uh, it's so many great ones. I don't even want to, I don't even want to tip the hand, but, um, but Saul, man, I love you, my brother. Thank you for everything, man. And everybody watching, uh, Demel, Lee, everybody on the YouTube, everybody on Facebook, LinkedIn. We love you guys. Thank you, man, for keep on giving me up, supporting me, man. These last six months have been a whirlwind in my life, starting a business, not being with a brand. And you guys just keep me uplifted. You guys, oh, every time I'm down, you guys send me something that just picks me up. So I love you guys. Thank you. It's been a lot. And we're going to kill it this season. We're going to have fun. And I can't wait to see what this year brings us, brother. But uh, I love you again, Saul. And thank you for everything, man. Love you too, man. And look, I, I, I'm excited to be a part of your journey as well. So let's keep this going. And, and I'm part of your community. I'm part of this village. So let's let's get the channel, the brand, the business on to the next, on to the next. You know, you're doing it. You're doing on it. To, we're doing it, brother. I appreciate you, man. And thanks again for everybody on the chat. This is episode one. We're gonna, I'm definitely gonna pop a bottle today. We're gonna get we're gonna celebrate. I hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll see you guys next week. We got CEO Angel Livis, who is the CEO of a live podcast network. She's actually the first black-owned and woman-owned podcast network. Huge things going on, and we actually exclusive partner with her. So you're gonna expect a lot to come with us. It's gonna be a great conversation, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for more than the title. We'll see you guys. What you know about me? Seen it all, heard it all. Oh, what you know about me? I've done it all, just one.